This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Sturge One of the few benefits of being GMs or Game Masters is that as the architects and designers of the fantastic adventures that our players undertake, we get to punish our players for any personal slights and petty annoyances we have to suffer through as a form of cathartic schadenfreude. And it does not matter, in the least, that our poor players had nothing to do with said slights and annoyances. Sure, we can punish the player who forgot to pay us for his share of last week's pizza by placing a mimic in the game so we can watch his character get beaten to death by a demonic treasure chest stuffed with other people's gold. But after some jerk cuts us off in traffic and makes us late, we can also send a hippogriff down on our players' characters to devour their warhorses and leave them stranded without transportation in the wilderness. Just because. It's an abuse of power, sure. But what other reason is there to have power? And that is why, as we sit down to run our players through tonight's weekly game with our legs slathered in calamine lotion that barely suppresses the burning and itching of dozens upon dozens of angry red welts, they're going to wish Gary Gygax had never invented the Sturge. Let us explain. Recently, we made the terrible mistake of going out into a damp, misty field just after a Wisconsin summer dawn to practice our golf swing. And we forgot to apply any bug repellent. You can decide which was the bigger mistake. And since we're new to Wisconsin summers, we did not realize the seriousness of this oversight at first. But it quickly became apparent that we had made a terrible mistake when a cloud of insects thick enough to darken the sky surrounded us. Forty minutes later, we dragged ourselves from that field bleeding profusely from both legs and discovered we had nothing short of fifty insect bites on each leg. And the itching and burning are so maddening that we are literally writing this episode on a laptop while soaking in a bathtub full of colloidal oatmeal. Not the kind with raisins in. And since we've been eaten alive by a thousand merciless mosquitoes, our players are going to have to fight off a few dozen sturges, lest they end up a bunch of deflated, exsanguinated corpses somewhere in the trackless wilderness between Baldur's Gate and Eltergard in northwestern Faerun. You might think we're being a little disproportionate in our rage, but let us assure you that the mosquito deserves all that and more. A thousand times more. Because despite its name being derived from a diminutive form of the Spanish word mosca, which means fly, and therefore mosquito means fly, but smaller, despite the name being so unassuming and innocuous, mosquitoes are, without any hyperbole at all, the deadliest creatures on planet Earth. Well, if you measure it right, and we're not in the mood to cut them any slack. The fact is that there are more human deaths that can be attributed to mosquitoes every year than can be attributed to any other single animal on the planet. Mosquitoes claim the lives of over one million people each year, including one child every minute. Yes, forget sharks, 
forget killer bees, forget the Australian funnel-web spider or Komodo dragon or the Japanese giant hornet. Mosquitoes are the deadliest thing on earth, bar none. And they only kill you so their children can live. In case you somehow don't know, mosquitoes are small insects, members of the Culicidae family. They're basically a type of gnat, hence the Spanish name. As such, they are winged insects with three pairs of legs, a segmented body, antenna, and most prominently, an elongated jaw. And they are most well known for using that jaw to feed on the blood of other animals. Except that's not entirely true. See, mosquitoes actually feed primarily on sugary nectar, which they harvest from plants. And they use their elongated maxillae, that's the technical name for their jaw parts, they use their elongated maxillae to gather that nectar from flowers. And because most of the 3,500 species of mosquitoes have excellent senses and differentiate between different types of sugars and flowers, they actually play a very important role in the pollination of certain plants because they carry pollen from one plant to the next as they seek their next meal. And for the mosquito, the sugary nectar is enough to keep it alive for its entire five to seven month lifespan. It's just not enough to pack a mosquito egg with all the ingredients it needs to grow to a bouncing baby mosquito nymph. And that's where the blood sucking comes in. And it's only the female mosquitoes that are to blame for that. See, male mosquitoes basically have one purpose in life to fertilize mosquito eggs. Beyond that, they just flip from plant to plant, happily drinking nature's equivalent to soda pop. And the male mosquitoes only need to do that fertilization thing once, because they don't fertilize the eggs directly. When a male and female mosquito mate, the female stores the sperm in a specialized structure in her body for later use. Then, when she decides it's time to have some kids, she seeks out a suitable place for their kids to raise themselves, fertilizes the eggs with the stored sperm, and lays them. Some species of mosquito don't even care if the place is all that suitable right now. Sometimes they pick a place that looks like it might be suitable someday later. See, mosquito nymphs live in water, and they sustain themselves by swimming around and filtering bacteria and nutrients from the water with their feathery antennae. So they need a good supply of water that's full of bacteria and nutrients, hence their preference for standing water rather than flowing water especially standing water around decaying plants or other biological matter. But there isn't always a suitable place around for mosquito nymphs to grow, so the mosquito mommy will look for a place that might have standing, nutrient-rich water eventually, someday, down the road. And the eggs will just lay in a state called diapause until conditions are right. Once there's enough water around the egg, it'll hatch. And that's why mud and standing water seem to just birth clouds of mosquitoes, and why mosquitoes seem to appear out of nowhere in warm, damp weather. As we said though, sugar water isn't sufficient to enrich an egg with enough nutrients to allow a nymph to develop. So when the female is ready to lay eggs, either right before or right after mating, she'll seek out a better source of protein-rich nutrients. And that source is blood. Animal blood. So it's only the female mosquito that drinks blood, and she usually, but not always, seeks blood only to enrich developing eggs. And how do they find blood? Well, primarily by following the smell of carbon dioxide. Mosquitoes can detect a source of carbon dioxide, which animals exhale with every breath, 
from 75 feet away. Which is why the more active you are, the more mosquitoes you attract. They zero in on the source of carbon dioxide and fly back and forth until they find their prey in the cloud. Then they land on the victim and start sucking blood. Now, you might have this image of a mosquito's proboscis as a kind of hypodermic needle. They insert the needle, suck some blood through a hollow tube, and then withdraw and fly off. Well, we're sorry to tell you it's much less pleasant than that. The mosquito actually drains blood through a very complex jaw structure called a fascicle. The maxillae that we mentioned earlier, the jaw parts themselves, have these fine teeth a bit like saw blades. And they literally cut through the flesh of their prey, like saw blades, with a back-and-forth sawing motion. Once they cut an opening, they unfold a bundle of tendon fibers into the wound to actually draw the blood. At the same time, the hook-like hairs on their legs latch on tightly to hold them in place. Once they have filled their abdomen with the lifeblood of their victim, the whole mouth structure snaps back together and folds up as they straighten their legs and then fly off, ready to lay their eggs. As unpleasant as that operation is, it really isn't particularly deadly given the size of the average mosquito. So where do we get off accusing mosquitoes of being the worst killers in the entire animal kingdom? Well, it's no secret that mosquitoes, as blood drinkers, can carry all sorts of illnesses that live in the blood of various animals. And as they go from animal to animal, they carry these infections with them. That's how they spread illnesses like the West Nile virus or Zika or yellow fever. But most of the deaths that we can lay at the six hairy feet of female mosquitoes are due to just one disease. Malaria. And there's a little more to it than the casual transmission of blood-borne pathogens. See, there's a few specific species of mosquito that actually provide a perfect incubator for a parasite called Plasmodium. And those mosquitoes are usually called malaria mosquitoes or marsh mosquitoes. Because the Plasmodium parasite, which incubates inside but does not otherwise harm the mosquitoes, is the thing that causes malaria. Now, malaria, which means bad air, is a really horrible and deadly debilitating illness caused by one of several species of the Plasmodium parasite. And the parasite has evolved to live half of its life cycle, the larval stage, inside mosquitoes, and then to reproduce in humans. And it either uses the human liver or the human red blood cells to fuel its reproduction. The parasite invades the cells of its chosen medium, hijacks the mechanisms and nutrients inside the cell for its own reproduction, and eventually reproduces so much that it blows the cell apart. The newly born parasites then continue the cycle. And what makes malaria particularly dangerous is that while it's living inside the host's cells, it can go unnoticed by the body's immune system. The only place they ever really get noticed is in a major security checkpoint in the spleen. But the malaria parasites can avoid passing through the spleen by gluing their infected host cells to the walls of the blood vessels with a sticky protein they produce. Meanwhile, they're doing a lot of damage. 10 to 15 days after infection, the first symptoms start as the damage starts to mount, and the toxins they spread through the body take their toll. The most notable symptom is a cycle of fevers and chills that occur every two to three days, very regularly. 
Malaria also causes pain, nausea, vomiting, and fatigue. Jaundice and anemia often follow due to liver damage and loss of red blood cells. Eventually, the damage can spread to the kidneys or brain and cause kidney failure, seizures, and comas. And those complications are often fatal. Now, malaria is preventable, treatable, and even curable in some cases if it is treated early enough and the parasites can be completely flushed from the body. Of course, the right treatments have to be used and the different forms of malaria require different treatments. There are over 200 million new cases of malaria reported each year and there are up to 700,000 deaths from the disease annually. And the vast majority of those cases and deaths are on the continent of Africa. Obviously, that's partially because tropical and subtropical regions provide the right environment for malaria mosquitoes to survive and thrive all year round. But it's also because of the socioeconomic conditions prevalent across those countries. Poverty prevents people from accessing preventative measures, even simple ones like mosquito nets and mosquito repellent, and from accessing treatment once they are infected. And the governments of most African nations are crippled by financial crises and can't take strong national actions against the disease. Poor sanitation and poor infrastructure in rural areas create exactly the sort of standing water in which mosquitoes can breed and also weakens the immune system of the inhabitants of such areas. And the widespread presence of immune-weakening diseases like HIV-AIDS also allows malaria to kill with impunity. And because malaria has been widespread for so long in Africa, it is becoming resistant to the drugs that have been used to treat it. And that is what makes the malaria epidemic in Africa such a tragedy. It's because some of the conditions that allow it to continue are entirely preventable with some simple improvements and tools. Fortunately, there are numerous charitable organizations working against the disease, such as Imagine No Malaria, that grew out of the United Methodist Church, and Nothing But Nets, organized by the United Nations. Now, we realize that our massive bug bites are nothing compared to the scourge of malaria, and that it may not be appropriate to segue into a discussion about a mosquito-inspired fantasy monster for a role-playing game. But, this discussion does give us the opportunity to raise awareness of this health crisis, and hopefully, that will do some good. Beyond that, we can also take a little bit of solace in the fact that Sturges really don't have anything to do with mosquitoes. See, despite the fact that the modern Sturge, the Dungeons and Dragons monster, is a blood-sucking insect that latches onto hapless adventurers and drains them dry of their vital fluids, and it certainly seems mosquito-like, it actually has more to do with Romanian vampires and ancient Greek owls than it does to do with mosquitoes. And when Gary Gygax first included the Sturge in his 1975 Greyhawk supplement to the original Dungeons & Dragons rules, he described them as bird-like and covered in feathers. But you'd be forgiven if you didn't recognize the monster as a mythological vampire owl, because Gary used the incorrect singular for Sturges. He called one vampire bird a Sturge. When he should have called it a Strix. And then, of course, everyone would realize it should have been a blood-drinking owl. At least, anyone who knows anything about biological classifications. 
See, owls comprise all of the different members of a specific order of nocturnal hunting birds, raptors, that live across the entire world. And that entire biological order is called Strigiformes, which comes from the Greek, and it means basically shaped like a scream. Because the Greek word strix means scream or cry. Now, today, we think the Greeks were pretty keen on owls. That they recognized them as wise creatures, probably wearing monocles and mortar boards. And that's because the owl was associated with the Greek goddess Athena and her favorite city Athens, the goddess of wisdom and warfare. But the reason the Greeks ascribed wisdom to owls was because owls were thought to be harbingers and omens. Their appearance always presaged important events. So it was their foresight that gave them the air of wisdom. But the Greeks did not fail to notice the owl was a secretive creature of the night, hooting and screaming and hunting in the dark. So it was associated with the supernatural and the otherworldly as well. And although the bird did often seem to herald important things, it was almost always seen as a bad omen. And Athena only hired the owl because she was tired of dealing with her previous sidekick, the crow, which was always cracking jokes and pulling pranks. The owl might have been terrifying, but at least it took the job seriously. At least according to Homer, that's how it happened. The associations with magic and with ill omens stuck with the owls through the centuries and across the world. In Africa, owls were thought to carry messages back and forth between shamans and the spirit world. And if an owl was always hanging around a particular house, people assumed a powerful and dangerous mage lived there. In Europe, in the Middle Ages, folks assumed much the same. Owls were the familiars of witches and wizards, carrying messages to and from magical destinations like hell and Hogwarts, and always heralding disaster. Owls were thought to represent darkness and faithlessness. To Christians, they represented the non-believer who lived in darkness. The barn owl particularly was seen as a symbol of disgrace. If a barn owl roosted on your property, it meant you had done something terrible, or would do something terrible. Now, it's important to understand that the Greeks called an owl a strix because of the owl's screech or cry. It was just their name for the animal. And by the way, the plural of strix is strixes or sturges, depending on which linguistic tradition you're following. And it seems that the Romans adopted the sturges plural, and that's what carried on into the Middle Ages. So by the Middle Ages, you had one strix or many sturges. But Gary decided that the singular of many sturges was one sturge, hence the D&D monster. That said, there was a pretty famous strix that was described by the Greek author Boios in his encyclopedia of birds called Ornithologia. And the passage we're talking about was preserved in the Roman author Antonius Liberalis's famous compilation Metamorphosis, which means to change shape. And the Strix was named Polyphonte. At least, she was when she was dimming human. But she became a Strix, an old, and maybe the first Strix, since Boyas's book supposedly describes the origins of various birds in the world. Polyphonte was the child of Hipponus and Thrasa, and Thrasa was the offspring of Ares and some river god or spirit. The point is that she was kind of a demigod once or twice removed. Now, Polyphonte didn't need no man. 
She wanted to stay a strong and independent woman, a virgin, and this really offended Aphrodite. Because she saw it as Polyphonte cheating her womanly duty to get married and have kids, so Aphrodite cursed Polyphonte to lust after this bear she encountered in the woods. And nine months later, Polyphonte gave birth to a pair of bear people named Agrius and Aureus. And Agrius and Aureus, being bear people, weren't the nicest of kids, and they didn't grow into the nicest of adults. They had a tendency to kill and eat people. And this annoyed Zeus, who sent Hermes to deal with it. Meanwhile, Polyphonte's great-grandfather Ares stuck up for the kids saying, Bear boys will be bear boys. It was a mess. And in the end, everyone agreed that some kind of divine vengeance was in order. And so Polyphonte, her two sons, the family's housemaid, were all turned into birds. Polyphonte and Agrius became different varieties of Strixes, of owls, who were condemned to cry through the night and herald death and doom for all mankind. Aureus became a vulture condemned to, well, be a vulture. And the housemaid, since she wasn't guilty of anything really, Zeus and Hermes decided to be merciful and agreed she could be a woodpecker. Seriously. And so that's the origin of the owl, the Strix, just a nasty, screeching, hooting creature of the dark created from divine vengeance. And then the Romans got a hold of these stories, and the Romans ran with them. According to their legend, Sturges, owls were monstrous creatures. They were a bit like vampires and a bit like succubi. They fed on human flesh and blood and had long, golden beaks with which to drink the blood from young children, which they preferred. But when they had a taste for the blood of adult men, they would transform into a beautiful woman, seduce a man, and drain him of his blood during a moment of intimate weakness, if you catch our drift. And so was born the myth of the Strix, the blood-drinking vampire owl, which inspired Gary Gygax to add Sturges to the world of Greyhawk and which also fueled the Romanian vampire myths of terrible, screaming vampire ghost women called Striga. Of course, maybe Gary was just another game master inflicting a bit of torment on his players to lessen his own suffering from a thousand Wisconsin mosquito bites. Because game masters are a lot like Greek gods. We inflict disproportionate revenge for tiny crimes. We don't always care if you're actually the one who committed the crime. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>